Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White, and in this episode, I am speaking with Sally Thomas. Our Forma followers will recognize Sally because they have read her poems in Forma Journal, and then last week we started a new feature through Forma. Uh, in which we're going to be sending out original published poetry from uh, contemporary poets. And Sally is our first poet uh, in this series, our featured poet right now. And so I invited her to come talk to us about her poetry and her life as a poet. So let me tell you a little bit about Sally. Sally Thomas is a poet and a fiction writer. And over the past two decades, her writing has appeared in First Things, The New Yorker, New Republic, Southern Poetry Review, The Sonora Review, Dappled Things, The Lost Country, Wendover, Plow Quarterly, and many other journals in the U.S. and U.K. So we have a very accomplished poet here with us today. Uh, Sally is the author of two poetry chapbooks, and her full-length poetry book, her collection, Motherland, was a finalist for the Abel Muse Book Award and is forthcoming from Abel Muse Press in 2019. So we'll hear from Sally in a bit on how we can get our hands on that. Uh, and her fiction and poetry have received awards uh, in many places, and Sally lives with her family in North Carolina. So Sally, thank you so much for being here today on Forma. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us, Sally, tell us about your poetic journey. How did you become a poet? What made you fall in love with poetry? Oh, gosh. Well, as a, as a child, some of my earliest memories, I mean, I was very lucky to grow up in a family with parents who valued reading and who took it upon themselves to read aloud to us. And when I was, you know, really little, they, my parents read poetry to me from anthologies like, you know, poems to read for the, for the, to the very young, which, um, and some of the, the earliest poems that I remember are things like, you know, someone came knocking at my wee small door and who has seen the wind, neither you nor I, um, 
Walter de la Mare, Rachel Lindsay, Sarah Teasdale, Eleanor Wiley, all of these, you know, marvelous stylists in, you know, in rhyme and meter writing these very simple poems that were very easy for a little child to apprehend, but just full of music and mystery. And, and so I guess, you know, from the beginning, my ear was really primed. I can't ever remember a time when poetry wasn't part of my life. You know, in elementary school, we used to copy poems all the time, even though, you know, I mean, and I guess we didn't really call it copy work, but for any holiday, there was always a poem that we were copying out and illustrating and, you know, putting up on the wall. And so again, I, you know, my whole early life was really permeated by poetry. Although when I started to write things and my, my own instincts were for storytelling before I could write, I used to just tell myself stories with things. I mean, my mother would get frustrated with me because she would try to sit down and do a puzzle with me. This is you know, what good mothers do with their children. It is, it is a good thing to do to make a puzzle together. And she would be frustrated because I would just pick a piece of the puzzle out, huh. go off by myself and tell a story with it. You know, the shape would remind me of something. And when I started to write, I wrote stories. Like mm-hmm. I spent all of fourth grade completely checked out, especially in math class, writing this horse story epic. Because, you know, when you're a fourth grade girl, you either have the horse disease or you don't. And That's exactly right. I, I remember that. <laughs> we had this, you know, I mean, you know how children play. You know, your, your games, your imaginative, imaginative games are a narrative. And so we had this extended narrative that we played intensely for at least a year, maybe two, where we were these two horse characters and we had these adventures and things happened to us. And we had this whole complicated family and this whole, you know, and we lived on top of a mesa because even though I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, where there are no mesas, somehow I had come across this word, probably in some other horse story. So this mesa that these horses lived on top of was very important. And so, you know, I like, so I just basically wrote that story and that's what I did in the fourth grade instead of school. Wow. I love that. And when did you start (laughs) writing your own poetry? When I started writing, I started writing poetry as far as I can remember. The first poems that I wrote were in the ninth grade. And I... I don't know what it was exactly about ninth grade, except that I had gotten switched from, I was, I was one of those kids. I I really, when I say I was checked out in school, I was really checked out in school and was always kind of like slotted into lower level classes. And my eighth grade English teacher had kind of discovered that I was writing this other extended teenage story in the back of the class and thought, this girl obviously knows what subjects and verbs are by now. She needs to be in honors English. So I got put in honors English for ninth grade and had this remarkable teacher um, who actually is a poet herself. And to make a long story short, we kind of reconnected in the last year or so. And she has a book coming out in the spring. And so we're going to go on a reading tour together once we, both our books are out because we just thought this whole teacher student thing would be, would be fun. But she was just this 
magnetic kind of personality who talked about being a poet as well as teaching poetry, obviously, in English class. And one of the things that I really remembered about her that had stuck with me for years and that I told her when I found her online and sent her an email out of the blue was that she had been a student of Alan Tate's at, um, at Vanderbilt. And wow, that was 1979 was the year he died. That was the year I was in the ninth grade. And she used to talk about going to visit him in the nursing home. And I think the idea that poets were like people who were alive and that they like knew other poets and were real people and (laughs) had these interactions was as electrifying to me as discovering, I mean, that was the year I read E.E. Cummings for the first time. And like every fourth grade girl either has the horse disease or not. Every ninth grade girl either has the E.E. Cummings disease or not. (laughs) You know, but I mean, it was my first exposure to something that didn't look like, you know, the little Halloween poems that copied in elementary school. And just every, I mean, it now seems so cliched in a way that using lowercase letters and all of all of his experimentation in in one sense is sort of old news to us now but to ninth grade me it was just like taking the top of my head off so for a long time I wrote everything in lowercase and you know there were lots of parentheses and all of that kind of E Cummings E stuff. And I don't think it even occurred to me that he was writing in form or that things rhymed or anything like that. But I, you know, I did that imitation for a long time till I guess I just ran out of gas with that and went on. To <laughs> well, that's yeah. part of becoming a poet, that idea of imitation. Oh, that you, right. What other poets then, Sally, have influenced you? Have you imitated? And who do you like to read? I like to read. Well, um, you know, to answer the question about influences and imitations, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, the next time that I, you know, the picture becomes clear in my memory, I'm a sophomore in college and I'm taking a poetry writing class from Mark Jarman at Vanderbilt. And the standing assignment for that semester, we were given A. Poulin's anthology of contemporary American poetry. And we just basically were supposed to read it, find poems that spoke to us and write imitations of them. And the only one that I really remember responding to was Galway Cannell's St. Francis in the South. And, you know, I really, I liked Galway Cannell early on. Shortly after that, I started reading Elizabeth Bishop in Mm. And Elizabeth Bishop and Marianne Moore and their whole method of observation, I guess, you know, this, this, this is something that both of them shared. I mean, Moore is kind of the mentor doing this and then Bishop kind of taking Moore's method and pushing it in her own directions. But, you know, the idea of looking intensely at something to understand it and reveal something about it to see into it or through it to something that was true. That was really potent to me early on. And it's something that I still like, that's kind of a touchstone in my own mind, I guess. I love that. And that makes me 
picture you as that little girl with the puzzle piece. <laughs> just that, and, and that's in many ways what poetry does. It teaches us to pay attention. Right. Your poetry does that. I see that in your poetry too. Uh, but that, you know, you're, you're that little girl with the puzzle piece who's saying, this is part of a larger picture, but I'm just going to study this little bit and honor this little bit. Right. This has a life. This little thing, whatever it is, um, whatever it reminds me of. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that probably is very much, you know, my lifelong method, how my mind, how the mind really works. That's how my mind really works. I love that. Well, Forma has published two of your poems, lovely poems, A Lady Writing a Letter with Her Maid, and The Hermit Observes All Saints Day. So... Tell us about Lady Writing a Letter. What inspired that poem and what should we readers pay attention to as we contemplate it? Um, well, it's, it's an ekphrastic poem. It's a response to a painting by Vermeer. And that's the name of the painting, Lady Writing a Letter with Her Maid. And the painting is pretty much as the poem describes it. And I don't actually remember when I started writing this poem. I finished it. I mean, I found it in a bunch of old files, whenever I'm stuck for something to write, I start combing back through old things. Cause I'm always like writing lines and writing fragments and putting them aside. I mean, nothing's ever wasted, right? In your right. personal economy. So I never throw anything away. And I always think, well, okay, this isn't working, but I'm just going to leave it in this file. And then occasionally I'll just kind of go back through them and see what I find. So I found this poem. And I can't remember, I can't remember what the fragment that I found looked like, whether it was already in rhyming couplets or whether rearranging it into rhyming couplets was what pushed it forward. I really can't remember where, where it was, but it was one of those things that I'd, I'd written and put aside and I came back and just thought, well, Oh, this is not as awful as I thought it was. (laughs) something with this but it it is a poem that I think and I certainly wasn't consciously thinking about this at all but you know it is a poem where I think that sort of like method of observation comes into play and that what really had drawn my eye to the painting and what I wanted to try to render was the light on all the surfaces mm. and the way that the, the solid objects in the room, at least this is the beginning of the poem. It doesn't really stay there, but that, you know, that the way in is how all the solid objects and the people in the room are defined by the light. They show up as, you know, light striking some kind of surface. So, you know, the silver inkwell being a gleam and the feather pen, a drift of sun and everything is light and shadow. Mm-hmm. And then this eventually starts to define the two women themselves. And in the painting, I mean, it's a, it's a really famous painting, but it's, it's this lady is sitting at her desk. Her head is kind of down. She's wearing a cap and she's writing and this young woman is standing next to her, as described in the poem, wearing her brown sort of homespun gown and looking out of the window. And it's this big window and the light obviously is coming in through it. And I did a little reading about the painting because I was curious to know, like, what does anybody really know 
what exactly is supposed to be going on in this moment. And I don't know that anyone actually knows exactly what's going on in that moment, but some scholars have suggested that the woman is writing a letter to a clandestine lover mm-hmm. and the maid is the go-between. She's standing there waiting to take the letter. Mm-hmm. So the idea, and she does have this very knowing look on her face. So mm-hmm. you can see how this could be a plausible narrative for that. Yeah. And I did, so that some of that kind of went into the poem too, although I didn't want to pin it down to that interpretation. And sure. Really, I just wanted, I mean, kind of in the same way that you have these contrasts of light and shadow, I guess what appealed to me was the contrast between the two women, one of whom is looking down, one of whom's looking out of the window. Maybe she's being seen while the other woman is unseen. Hmm. Um, Just all of these contrasts between them were interesting to me, as is the fact that you don't know what's outside the window. Right. There's a mystery to it. Right, right. So there's, yeah, so all of this is kind of, you know, it's a moment that's really pregnant with all of these possible stories and interpretations, but you don't really know right. what it is, but you're suspended in that moment. So. Wow. Thank you. And then what about the Hermit Observes All Saints Day? What inspired that and what should we be paying attention to? Well, this is one of a, series of poems that I've been writing since about Christmas time last year. And I had actually written a hermit sonnet, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, maybe for Lent Hmm. one year, I set myself the discipline of writing a sonnet every day. And I've done it once. It's it's a really interesting discipline. I could talk a long time about that, but I won't right now. But in the course of writing these 40 sonnets, one a day, one for every day of Lent, hmm. I had written this sonnet in which this hermit character appears. And I don't know where he came from. He just suggested himself. And in that poem, it's autumn and he's standing by his wood pile and it's just cold enough that when he finds a newly hatched copperhead in the woodpile. It's dormant enough that he can pick it up without getting bitten. And he doesn't know why he does this, but he does. And then he thinks, well, and it's kind of coming to life in the warmth of his hand. And he's thinking, well, now what? (laughs) Do I just put it down? Is it going to bite me? What am I going to do? And so this was my introduction to the hermit. And I was looking at that poem again and thought, you know, I'm really interested in this hermit. What's he doing there? What's his whole, he could have a whole life there on this ridge where he lives. And so I just started writing more sonnets and a few poems that aren't sonnets, but mostly, mostly sonnets of various kinds. Um, including I wrote a couple of upside down ones that start with a couplet or start with a sestet and huh. work your way down. You know, I mean, you get bored after a while. You, have to <laughs> um, you can play, you playing with the form. Yeah, right. And, you know, but really kind of trying to write, if not a novel, almost like a, the poetic version of a book of linked short stories that mm. add up to a novel, even though they don't necessarily have this direct linear kind of narrative form. 
So I had been, and, and I kind of thought, you know, the organizing principle in my mind would be the liturgical year and that it wouldn't just be about feasts and fasts. It would, you know, there would be a lot of ordinary time or a lot of just, you know, that it could meander in different ways, but that this was going to be the organizing principle. So in this, I almost never have an organizing principle on a large scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for once I was being an architect, not a gardener, to go back to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whoever it was that said that. Um, right. Yep. George, yeah. Mar- George Martin. Yeah, right, right. So anyway, so I had this kind of architecture in mind. Huh. Trying, and, and that was what kept me writing, really, it was sort of like, well, if I can't think of anything else to do, gee, what saint's feast is coming up? What, where are we in the liturgical calendar? Let's have the hermit do something. (laughs) It sounds so reductive, but that's kind of what I did. No, it's not reductive. In many ways, it's expansive because the liturgical year is bottomless. And so that uh, a life lived in those moments, as you've pointed out earlier with the Vermeer painting is, I mean, that's a rich life. Right. Yeah. And there's so much sort of flexibility with, within it for, you know, things for him to do, things for him to experience, things for him to think. And the, the sort of overarching idea is that he's come to the woods to live, to live deliberately, mm-hmm. um, to, to learn to pray and as an act of penance. And so there's some poems that sort of refer to events in his past life. And I mean, he has a couple of funny little encounters with the local priest. And the part of the story is that he lives in the mountains kind of above this resort town where half the year, the people who live there in the summer are gone and the church is shut and the priest who's retired goes off to the beach. So he's sort of, he's very sort of spiritually isolated, but then he has these kind of funny encounters when the, with the priest, when the priest is around. Um, so all of that is the backdrop to this poem, which I really just wrote thinking, well, I wrote it, I, you know, I didn't, obviously, All Saints Day is next week, but right. I wrote this probably back in the spring, I guess, when I was just kind of getting up and writing a hermit poem or two every day. And so my calendar was moving a lot faster. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> the liturgical year was cycling through in that moment <laughs> in a smaller amount of time there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I really don't remember how this one started. And I don't think I knew it was about All Saints Day until hmm. at least halfway through it. Wow. And taking, you know, heating water and pouring it into his bath yeah. just as part of something that he would do. And I didn't know where it was going to go, you know, like, is this going to be a baptism? Is it going to be, why are, why are we taking a bath? Right. And, you know, it really did become about the steam and the figures that he sees in the, in the steam, but it all just generated itself once right. I started writing it. Oh, that's such a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a poet. Thank you, Sally. I'm loving this. I want you to keep talking. But you have a new collection of poetry releasing soon. Where can we find it? And does it have the hermit poems in it? <laughs> it's not. This is, and it's not out yet. In fact, I'm still waiting for galleys as we speak. So it mm-hmm. might actually be early 2020 before we see it. But it's a full-length collection. The title is Motherland. And it 
basically represents 25 years worth of work. I mean, the first iteration of this manuscript that I sent out was 25 years ago, and it was my MFA thesis. And it's undergone massive changes since then. And I went through long years where I didn't send it out and years when my children were little and I wasn't writing or publishing very much at all. And, but I mean, it's just been added to and altered and it does include poems from the two chapbooks that I've published with finishing line press. One of which is called fallen water, which is just a collection of kind of random poems. Although I guess the themes of that it's, I mean, it's 26 pages, so it's a very short collection, but sort of on, Marriage, Children, and Death, I guess. Then my second chapbook, Rikeldus of Walsingham, is a cycle of poems based in the pilgrimage village of Walsingham in North Norfolk in England. And Walsingham was the second most visited medieval shrine after Canterbury Mm. until the Reformation. And it became a, a shrine and a place of pilgrimage because the lady of the manor, and I mean, people debate about who she was and when she was and if she was, but the legend has it that in 1061, so just five years before the Norman conquest, a lady named Rikeldis de Faverche, is an interestingly Norman name, but anyway, mm-hmm. she's the lady of the manor on this Norfolk estate received visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary in which she was told to build a replica of the house at Nazareth where Mary had received the angel Gabriel's visit. And the, and the visions had been just basically Mary showing Rakeldus around this house. So wow. um, this holy home tour, <laughs> I've always just loved this. And so I started writing this cycle of poems after I had been to Walsingham with my family, with my husband and children about 20 years ago. Wow. And so it's basically a series of dramatic monologues from different points in history and women's voices and girls' voices and stories rooted in this place. So that actually is the end of Motherland. That cycle is what concludes the longer book. Hmm. So it's a lot of poems leading up to that as well, which obviously had to do with motherhood, marriage, um, and observation of things, because that's what I do. So the hermit poems are a completely different thing, and I'm already thinking in terms of, I mean, I would like not to take 25 years to publish the next <laughs> possibly can avoid that. So, I mean, I'm kind of already thinking of the hermit poems as at least a section of a new book, but they are, they are a separate and a newer thing. Wow. Well, thank you, Sally, so much for sharing your poetic vision and giving us insight into, uh, I hate to use such a cold word as process because what you're describing is a living contemplation that overflows into, uh, in, into your work. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, We're big fans of your work. And where can our listeners find you? Uh, Where where can they read more of your work? 
Um, well, I have a website. The link is sally-thomas.com. Okay. And I try to link things, especially as they appear online, like these former review poems. Mm -hmm. um, I try to gather them all there so that that's just a central place where, where people can find my work. I'm also on Facebook um, okay. with, a, with a sort of public author page where I try to post something every day. And I'm also on Twitter. So, <laughs> okay, that's great. Oh man, social media is so great. All right, well, we eagerly anticipate Motherland. We'll all keep an eye out for it. Um, we're excited about the future of your work. Thank you for writing. Thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you, Heidi. And listeners, thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast on the Circe Podcast Network. Uh, we'll see you next time exploring the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.